welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. And we're going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We're up to number 19 on the countdown. Which means that on this episode, we'll be talking about Alex North's score to the 1951 screen version of the stage classic, A Streetcar Named Desire. A Streetcar Named Desire was written by Tennessee Williams, and it was here adapted for the screen by Oscar Saul. It was produced by Charles K. Feldman and directed by Aaliyah Kazan. Eddie, tell us about A Streetcar Named Desire. Well, it's a tragic drama. It takes place in a New Orleans apartment. It's here filmed in black and white. And it is about a woman whose life is falling apart, who, as her last hope, goes to stay with her sister and her sister's husband. The woman whose life is falling apart is Blanche Dubois, and she's here played by Vivian Lee. Her sister, Stella, is played by Kim Hunter, and Stella's husband, Stanley Kowalski, is memorably played by Marlon Brando. Carl Malden is also on hand as Mitch, one of Stanley's buddies, who winds up becoming a love interest for Blanche. Yeah, so they're all crammed into this small, sweaty apartment, and immediately conflict arises between Blanche's dreams of gentility and Stanley's brutality. And things do not end well for Blanche. Good enough? Good enough. So, Andy, would you believe that I was once given a callback for the role of Stanley Kowalski in a college production of A Streetcar Named Desire? Uh... Yeah, you wouldn't believe that, right? I was, frankly, agog to uh, to receive this callback, and I would like to believe that the uh, casting person who decided to do so still wakes up in a cold sweat thinking of his mistake. He knows who he is. I, I don't know if there is a, a role in all of theaterdom that I would be less suited to play, with the possible exception of Othello. But you tried out for it, apparently. Yeah, well, I tried out for the... For Mitch. <laughs> Did you go in for Stanley? You thought, I think I could be Stanley Kowalski. No, I just read a generic scene at first, and I think they gave everybody a Stanley scene to read. And I read it, and then I saw my name on the callback sheet for the role of Stanley. What about, um, what are the other guys' names? Steve? Pablo? Yeah. You could have been like a card-playing dude, no problem. I totally could have been a card-playing dude. I wound up not getting to be any of the dudes. And now, if they had offered you Stanley, would you have taken it, or did you already think, this is a mistake? I would have taken it, and then I would have had to, like, hit the gym or something. That's fine, but you also have to, like, act the part. Oh, yeah. Well, listen, I tried to do some acting in college. I would have tried it. As it turns out, though, I think that the role of Stanley Kowalski was pretty well cast in this movie. Yeah, you think Marlon Brando was a better choice than you, for example. Right, for example. Yeah, I wonder if anybody has ever observed that Marlon Brando gives just a terrific performance in this movie. Are we the first people to think of that? What do you think? Yeah, it's a spectacular performance. We are not the first to observe this. Now, I have never seen a stage production of A Streetcar Named Desire. I actually have not either, despite auditioning for one. Well, when you don't get a part in a show, it's tough to go see that same show. Yeah, exactly. So I've never seen another Stanley Kowalski. I imagine it can be done other ways. Can it? I mean, this just seems so definitive to me. Because Brando was so incredibly powerful, and his power comes out in many different ways. He's charming. He's brutal. He's incredibly charismatic. And the first time I watched it, I was kind of 
in his spell and taken in by the character. And then when I watched it again, I took a very different attitude towards the character of Stanley Kowalski, kind of seeing everything again through a different lens, a much less sympathetic lens, uh, a lens colored by his, you know, abusiveness. So you're saying that being hypnotized by this charisma of Brando also made you feel sympathy for the character that then you stood outside of? Yeah, exactly. And then once the denouement of his abusiveness transpires, and I watched it again after that, yeah, it was it was a different take on the character. And I felt like the score was with me both ways. The score was selling his sexiness and charisma the first time I watched it. And then the second time I watched it, the score was underlining his abusiveness and his threatening nature. Well, I think more generally, what I hope we talk about as a strength of this score is that you say it works both ways for Stanley. I feel like it is wonderfully ambivalent about almost everything in the movie. Hmm. It does not push a particular interpretation. Yeah, it gives credit to the character's viewpoints as they're happening, but yeah, it doesn't tell you which one is correct. Yeah, it doesn't say who's good or bad. It doesn't say which events are sympathetic and which are unsympathetic. It's it's doing something else. Yeah, it sort of democratically plays the mindset of each of them in turn. Yeah, or sometimes not even a mindset so much as a dynamic, like a relationship dynamic. Yeah, I suppose a mindset. I mean, certainly Blanche has various monologues where it follows her train of thought, but it never felt to me like what it was doing was putting us inside her head with her. Oh, no? In the sense of putting us on side with one character or another mm -hmm. or, or making us feel what they're feeling. It's more that it illustrates what she's feeling or externalizes things in a oh, different way. I never was hard or self-sufficient enough. Soft people, soft people have got to court the favor of hard ones, Stella. You've got to shimmer and glow. I don't know how much longer I can turn the trick. It isn't enough to be soft. You've got to be soft and attractive. And I, I'm fading now. Have you been listening to me? Yeah, I'll buy that distinction. It's not promoting, it's not taking sides, but it is illustrating. But I thought there were some incredibly effective moments where the music is illustrating the psychological trauma that is going through her mind. We're introduced to this idea when Blanche is having these very upsetting flashbacks to the death of her first husband. She's remembering a night when they were dancing, and she hears this kind of spooky, echoey playing of a waltz. It's got a name, right? What is it? We dance the Varsuviana. Well, it's a Varsuviana, which is, I didn't know this really, but it's a type of ballroom dance. I think Varsuviana refers to Warsaw. Okay. And that comes from the original play. Tennessee Williams says that this Varsuviana is the associated music. So Alex North worked on the Broadway play, didn't he? No. I oh, believe okay. the situation is that Alex North had worked with Leah Kazan on Death of a Salesman and had written music for that. So that was a prior collaboration between the two of them on another great American play, but that the original Broadway play of Streetcar had music that 
was all source music or dream music like that. Mm -hmm. And it's all indicated in the original script. So yes, this is dream music that is playing within Blanche's head. We are hearing something that only she can hear. It's sort of like source music from inside her head. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, I was quite young. Boy. The boy died. So the first time that she has this flashback about the night that her husband died, who, it turns out, shot himself at this dance soiree, she hears this, this waltz playing. Can we call it a waltz without having to say Varsuviana every time? I don't know. I'm not sure you can. I mean, you know, like a Polonaise isn't a waltz. I think you have to call it a Varsuviana. Okay. She hears the Varsuviana. And it is played on this kind of music boxy or um, calliope kind of a sound. It was because on the dance floor, unable to stop myself, I said, you're weak. I've lost respect for you. I despise you. I looked into this and I think... It's not certain, but I think it may be a Novacord, which is like the first synthesizer. Wow. Like a vacuum tube synthesizer that they had in the 40s. You can hear clips of the Novacord sounding more like an organ in other forms. But they've set the settings to make it sound sort of tinkly, but spooky, weird. Never. For one moment since has there been any light stronger than... Okay, so this association is set up that this traumatic event, which has clearly left a deep psychological scar on her, whenever she thinks about it, whenever her mind casts back to it, she goes off into this kind of disturbed reverie and hears this in her head. So then towards the middle of the movie, there's this really eerie and creepy, sexy scene where she seduces a young paperboy, essentially. He's collecting money for the newspaper and kind of lures him in and kisses him. And it's clear that she is dancing back and forth between this recollection that she has, the young man that she married and lost. It's blurring together into the reality of this young boy in front of her. And so now after having heard the Varsuviana just play by itself, Now, for the first time, we hear it playing on top of and sort of vying with the other score, the, you know, the score, score. Yeah, the strings, the orchestra. The string orchestra, exactly. Evening, man. Oh. Oh, well. So here's the paper boy coming in. What can I do for you? Well, I'm collecting for the evening star. I didn't know that stars took up collections. We hear this lovely string orchestra music that feels kind of eerie and unsettled. Will you uh, have a drink? No, man. Now the boy comes into the light. Thank you. I can't drink on the job. And there's the Versuviana in her head, as you can see on her face that she's confused about what she's remembering and what's really in front of her. And then... Oh, now, let me see. No, no, 
And now it's blending back into the string orchestral texture that was there before. Poor relations you've heard tell about. Oh, that's all right, man. I'll come back later. Uh, hey, uh, have you uh, have you got a light? Sure. It's this very effective collaging layers, and it gives this sense of sort of floating between realities. She's not sure exactly whether she's with her late husband or with this young boy, and kind of wants to be both. Uh, hey, what, um, what time is it? Uh, Fifteen of seven. So late. Don't you love these long, rainy afternoons in New Orleans when an hour isn't just an hour, but a little piece of eternity dropped in our hands? And who knows what to do with it? It's this weird dissonance, adding these two elements together, they're rubbing against each other in a very intentionally evocative way. In a drugstore and had a soda. Uh Uh-huh. Chocolate. No, ma'am, cherry. (laughs) Cherry. Mm, you make my mouth water. Okay, so now the boy goes to go. I guess I... Young man. Young. And now the Varsuviana melody is played on the strings. Did anyone ever tell you you looked like a young prince out of the Arabian Nights? Now this spooky background thing that had been layered on top of the other score, now it's foregrounded. Now it is the score, and it really tells me now she's all the way gone. Now she's all the way back in her memory. I want to kiss you just once, softly and sweetly on your mouth. She's not in the present moment. Her reality is this memory. And even though she's kissing this boy in front of her, she's really kissing her late husband. That's what the foregrounding of this melody into the score texture is conveying to me. Yeah, maybe. Very psychologically evocative to me. Yeah, it's psychological scoring. But what's wonderful, to my mind, about that technique is that when it goes into the main orchestra, you put it as, well, now she's all the way gone into her memory. But on the other hand, it is also emerged into the the audience's space. It's there for us. Sure. Rather than making her seem more psychotic, more detached, now we sort of see it her way or have more access to seeing it her way. This is what I meant about the ambivalence of the score, that it doesn't take sides exactly. The whole play, the whole movie, has to do with Blanche's need for escape into magic, as she calls it, and Mm -hmm. fantasies, and the music's role in being an element of fantasy in the fabric of the movie is that we are able to be moved by it somewhat. It's not as though, you know, there's ways you can depict madness in music with swirling, spiraling, crazy sounds. That's not what this offers us at all. It offers us something a little unsettled, but also a little seductive, a little bit genuinely romantic for the audience. And so that's what I like about where he brings in this celeste. Young. Young. It is a sweet sound. Did anyone ever tell you you looked like a young prince out of the Arabian Nights? 
and it starts to make the chords in the orchestral part become a little off. It's like they've been denatured by the presence of this dream. Come on over here, like I told you. I want to kiss you just once. There's something wistful and genuinely romantic about it, even as there's a sickness in it, too. There's both. Yes, you're right. It's ambiguous about what it expects you to interpret in terms of the you know dramatic interpretation, but it gives you access to it so effectively. So you just gave an example of, as you said, a source-like piece of music, the Varsuviana, working its way into the main score. I feel like the whole score, over the course of the whole movie, kind of follows a trajectory like that. In the script of the play, Tennessee Williams refers to a blue piano. He calls it the blue piano, in quotes, and says specifically in various places, you know, the blue piano can be heard, the blue piano becomes louder, rises, fades away. The idea is that they're on this street in New Orleans where there's a jazz club at the end of the street, and they can hear music through the window from down the block all the time. And in the movie... This is introduced early on, I think when we first cut to the interior set where most of the movie takes place. Obviously, it's the set that corresponds to the stage set. It's the Kowalski apartment. You want it hot? Goldie. Stella. I think in that first introduction to the set, we hear some source music from down the street that's not by Alex North. It's actual. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a jazz standard tune. Right, of which there are quite a few in this score. Right. They introduce music as a sense of place and space and kind of establishing the setting. And then the first few pieces of score music, it enters essentially as though it's source music that just happens to have particular resonance with the drama. You know, the first time we see Stanley, or the scene where he meets Blanche, we hear this somewhat comical, somewhat dirty, bluesy, somewhat menacing piece of music you must be Stanley I'm Blanche oh you're still sister yes oh hi where's the little woman in the bathroom you know, we've been introduced to this world in which there's source jazz coming in the windows, and this is like, the source jazz has come in the window, but is a little bit too apropos to ignore. Man, look, it goes fast in the hot weather. You want a shot? No, I, I rarely touch it. Well, there's some people that rarely touch it, but it touches them often. Uh-huh. He has sort of deliberately put it at this level of like, well, this isn't exactly what a movie score would sound like, but it sure is affecting the scene. And the whole score kind of creeps in this way over the course of the movie. Well, it's just jazz out the window, but the jazz out the window, you know, is awfully apt. Mm -hmm. Hello, Stanley. Here I am all freshly bathed and sedated and feeling like a brand new human being. Oh, that's good. Will you, uh, excuse me while I put on my pretty new dress? And then, about halfway through the movie, in the scene where Stanley comes back 
dirty from uh, working on the car or something. Right. We get music that's kind of a descendant of some earlier source-like music, but now it's been worked into a more explicitly orchestral composed movie score texture. And then by the end of the movie, we're getting these elaborate sort of expressionist sequences of underscore, giving almost operatic quality to these monologues Blanche has. I lived in a house where dying old women remembered their dead men. Crumble and fade, regrets, recriminations. If you'd done this, it wouldn't have cost me that. Legacies and other things, such as blood-stained pillow slips. The movie gets infected by the music that's out the window at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you were describing that kind of in microcosm in the course of the young man scene. I just see it happening on this larger scale. I'm glad you used the word infected. I wrote down the word infected a lot as I was taking notes. I feel like in that scene in particular, the young man, I feel like she kind of gets infected by her memory of it. But I think there's also cases where Blanche sort of becomes infected by the jazzy, sexy qualities, the kind of low-down qualities of her surroundings. So the first time that she meets Mitch, Mitch is one of Stanley's poker buddies, and he kind of comes across Blanche and flirts with her a little bit, and Blanche turns on her genteel Southern Belle charm. She decides to kind of go for it and see if she can work her magic on on Mitch, who is played by that man again, Carl Malden. Here he is. I knew he was going to turn up in roughly half of the movies that we looked at. Yeah, I looked through. I think this might be his last appearance, but... I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, all right. Well, that's a good way to be. Yeah, so she looks up and we hear this violin. You're not... Mary? Oh, no. Oh, I'm an old maid school teacher. You may be a school teacher, but you're certainly not an old maid. Why, thank you, sir. I appreciate your gallantry. So you're in the teaching profession. I think this is the first time we've heard a violin in the whole movie. And it sticks out like a sore thumb. This very sweet, genteel violin... Again, it's her perspective. She is attempting to be this old-fashioned southern belle, and that's how it sounds to her to act that way, this sweet, schmaltzy violin, which is unlike anything else we've heard in the movie so far. I have the misfortune of being an English instructor. I attempt to instill a bunch of Barbie Soxes and drugstore Romeos with a reverence for Hawthorne and Whitman and Paul. Soon after that scene is the famous Hey Stella scene, where Stanley is crying out for Stella at the bottom of this staircase. We'll get to that in a little bit, I think. But that is scored with this incredibly sexy, low-down, slinky, jazzy stuff. You don't have to leave me, baby. And then Stanley and Stella go off and... Blanche, having witnessed this, is kind of shaken by it, and Mitch comes to comfort her. Mr. Bois. Mr. Bois. And the music that plays now forms a stark contrast. All quiet along the Potomac now? 
She ran down here and went back in there with him. Why, sure she did. I'm terrified. There's nothing to be scared of. They're crazy about each other. Used to fish. It's a shame this had to happen when you first got here. Violence is so... Sit down on the steps and have a cigarette with me. The interaction between Blanche and Mitch... The two interactions that bookends the Haystella scene, the first interaction is played with the schmaltzy violin, and the second interaction is played with a sort of similar jazzy world as the music that Stanley and Stella got. And that, to me, felt like a sort of infection. You know, she's no longer able to function in the same world that she's used to functioning in, where she can bat her eyes and use her charm. Uh, She's kind of thrown off kilter by what she's seen between Stanley and Stella. And the interaction with Mitch now is infected with what she's just seen. That's a really interesting interpretation because it's not my interpretation of why the music changes there, but nonetheless, I'm responding to the same change, that Blanche has been shaken by what she just saw go down between Stanley and Stella. But whether it's because she was infected by the sexuality of that, or whether having been shaken, she uh, is now more desperate and more raw and her emotions come out, which is sort of how I felt, that she can't quite do as much of an act because she's shaken. Yeah. Yeah, all of these differing interpretations that we're having between the two of us, I don't think they're mutually exclusive at all. I think no, it's all that's in exactly there. what I was going to say. Is that uh, back to my first comment about this score, which is that it aspires to participate in the complexity of the drama rather than resolve it for us. And so, Alex North is really sensitive to which moments are significant and in in what way they're significant but not significant within some kind of interpretive scheme, significant truly on dramatic terms, like this thing happens and then the character is in a different state, so the music will be in a different state. But that state is rich and not, um, you know, it's not like, well, this is the heroic music that you hear whenever they do something heroic. It's the music that corresponds to psychological elements. Anyway, so what I wanted to go back to is you said sexy jazzy because those are two words that one is inclined to put a comma between and assume they go together. But I don't know. I started asking myself when I was thinking about the main title of this movie. We start out the movie and we immediately hear. It's bluesy and it's kind of dirtiness. It has it has dirtiness to it, right? Yeah, well, it's like worldly and sort of uh, has no illusions. Yeah, gritty. You know, we see it over the shot of the exterior and connotes New Orleans. I mean, as I said, Tennessee Williams had this idea that the jazz coming from outside, this urban environment which we see in the first few scenes is disorienting to Blanche. She feels like this isn't her world and I can't believe my sister lives in such a grungy place. Uh, Basically, my understanding of this play, which I'm not going to claim is fully worked out, I can't write a thesis on this, but, you know, The Streetcar Named Desire has something to do with how people relate to sex and their deeper impulses. Talking about his desire, just brutal desire, the name of that rattletrap streetcar that bangs through the quarter, up one old narrow street and down another. Haven't you ever ridden on that streetcar? It brought me here. Blanche, it turns out, 
acts all prim and proper, but she's considered a sexual deviant in her hometown. That's why her life is falling apart. Anyway, the relationship between the bluesy sound in the music and sex in these characters' lives is not a cut-and-dried simple one in the movie. It's actually something that is a really interesting aspect of the movie. So I just wanted to ask, why does jazz connote sex in the first place? Uh, I think that jazz is associated with depravity and with being a sort of lower form of art. I think there's probably a lot of uh, racist assumptions built into that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's sort of where my thoughts went, because like, yeah. here the concept is that this play is set in New Orleans because, uh, you know, the world of New Orleans out there, which means black people and their music and this kind of exoticism to the white worldview yeah. of the Dubois family, certainly. And that this association... You know, to get into the racism of it is very, very complex, so I don't really want to... Yeah, and I, that might be a little bit above our podcast pay grade. Okay, well, anyway, what I wanted to say was, do you think that that association lives on now, or is it kind of an old-fashioned thing? Huh. You know, the, in the old days, you play a sexy saxophone, that means sex. That has kind of died down a bit, hasn't it? Uh, I think people are able to discern different modes of jazz. I think there's, you know, the cocktail jazz that we were talking about that Mancini did oh, sure. for Pink Panther, which has its own kind of sexual connotation, but, you know, definitely a different one, a more urbane one in, a, you know, the jet-setting world. I think the kind of growly, note-bending saxophone... I think that does still have a kind of ha-cha-cha-cha connotation to it. You know, you hear that, you, you watch a Bugs Bunny cartoon where that happens, and I think it still plays. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's 60 years old. That's also 60 years old. Yeah, I know, but I think it still has... I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. Well, anyway, in the milieu, in the period that we know this movie is from, once you hear that opening music, you know that this movie is going to be about... essentially a tragedy about people's sexual desires. It's implicit. Yeah. The music is so directly tied to those ideas. So since we're listening to the opening titles, can I just make a quick observation? You know, he's using this jazz idiom, and a crucial element of a jazz idiom is the idea of a rhythm section, that there are certain instruments whose job it is to keep a consistent rhythm going. You know, it's usually the bass and the drums, and sometimes there's another instrument kind of adding chords, but there's a constant beat. Doom, ba, boom, ba, boom. And there's a lot of spots where he keeps that jazz rhythm going continuously, but is still able to respond to beats in the dialogue. It's a very impressive balance that he's able to strike between keeping the music continuous and plausibly jazzy, but also sensitive. And I think that's presaged just a little bit in the very opening titles here, because the beats in the first few bars are odd. He changes the beat pattern in order to fall on the different title cards that come up. So first we see the Warner Brothers Pictures Presents card. That says the Pulitzer Prize in New York Critics Award winning play. Here, let's count the beats here. One, two, three, four. One, two, three... 
here's the streetcar card. So he dropped a beat out of that rhythmic texture, and that beat doesn't get dropped in the same way throughout the rest of the titles. He clearly did it so as to highlight the title card. Well, maybe that's where it came from, but I do think that the style he establishes by doing a thing like that, which would never be done in real jazz, is part of the real voice of the score, that it is not jazz, it is something expressionist that's using jazz. And I think that sure. there might be a momentary reason why he did it there, but I bet he could have found a way to do it without changing the beat if changing the beat didn't serve that purpose. To me, the effect of listening to a thing like that when I'm not thinking, well, you know, what was his plan, is that it opens up the expressive space. Like, mm-hmm. music that can do that can do anything. It can do anything it wants. Right. Yeah, it's not bound by this strict rhythmic structure, even though it's sort of playing with it. He's able to stay sensitive to the beat-to-beat action in the dialogue while still maintaining this jazz rhythm section continuity. The scene where Stanley has rifled through Blanche's trunk and is saying where she got all these fancy clothes and strewn them around the room, and then... In the middle of his scene with Blanche, she goes into the room and sees that he's done this. So it's just this, again, music that could be coming from down the street. Now she pulls the curtain. She sees that he's messed up all her things. Thank you. And it goes up to this other chord, and there's these tense piano notes suspended over this somewhat dissonant chord, but it's still in the same rhythm. The rhythm never misses a beat. I understand there's to be a little card party here tonight, to which we ladies are cordially not invited. That's right. And then it kind of just as easily slinks back down into the same sort of regular jazz texture. That is a great moment. And, yeah, to me that epitomizes this flavor of doom, you know, it's one of the beautiful effects of this movie, that there's this gothic kind of attention to what they're doing that's gonna, it's gonna come and get her, and there's a threat in that, that this jazz music might rise up and sort of slap her. (laughs) She looks at something and it's a shock to her, and the music that's just been kind of playing benign in the background is like, right, but again, doesn't miss a beat. It's a very eerie thing. It's like some guy in the background that you thought was a dead body moves for a second, makes you jump. There's a couple of spots where just having music playing in the background that's explicitly background music has, I think, a calculated effect as well. Like there's a long scene where Mitch is out on a date with Blanche and they're at a club or something where there's a live jazz band playing. And throughout this whole scene, you can hear the jazz band just playing another tune. But it's played at this very low level. I'm looking for the Pleiades, the seven sisters, but these girls aren't out tonight. And this is very pointedly not scoring the dialogue. It's very pointedly just background wallpaper, right? May I kiss you? Why do you always ask me if you may? Well, I don't know whether you want me to or not. And I feel like this 
de-emphasizes what they're doing. It, it underlines the fact that they're kind of play-acting. She's kind of going through the motions here. She's playing at this character, this demure Southern Belle character, which you know, we later learn is kind of a put-on. But honey, you know as well as I do, that a single girl, a girl alone in the world, has got to keep a firm hold on her emotions or she'd be lost. And I feel like having their scene not given the same kind of close attention is effective at de-emphasizing it or not giving it the same importance. You know, you feel like it's not as genuine an interaction. Yeah, that's right. It's not that it's not as important. It's that it's not as genuine. Right. And when you say that that's like the wallpaper, I can bring that to the metaphor I was just trying to make a minute ago. This is a movie where every now and then the wallpaper comes to life and threatens the characters and that yeah. that corresponds to essentially the psychological thing that happens which is that their inner lives sort of rise up their actual animal instincts or their fears or their needs rise up into the drama and threaten them and the music perfectly understands that so in this scene with mitch and blanche on the water the real score starts up when he asks how old are you that's the cue that makes it real, makes it a genuine interaction that she has to deal with reality. Can I ask you a question? Yes, what? How old are you? What do you want to know? Fact for Right, but it's not contrasted by passing over some obvious boundary. It sneaks up on them. Yeah. That cue starts mixed at the same level as the source music, and it starts essentially like a slow dance number that might be played there. Yeah, that's the the love theme for Blanche and Mitch, which is kind of a more generic-sounding love theme than the other material in the score, which I think is intentional. This is essentially the voice of the score, the Alex North voice, comment on the relationship between Blanche and Mitch, Blanche's hope for uh, redeeming love or... A protective love. A protective love, that's right. That's a good description of what that music tries to evoke. Whether or not it's a realistic hope, that's what the music is trying to sort of paint in. Part of what's wonderful about that is that Mitch is so not a character who could sustain a standard love theme in a standard movie. Mm -hmm. Why did your mother want to know my age? My mother is sick and... I'm sorry to hear it, barely. She won't live long. Maybe just a few months and she worries because I'm not settled. She wants to see me settle down before she... You love her very much, don't you? We feel the tenuousness of this. We feel this kind of hope. Like, I, I hope you can get to where this music wants to take you. It is not like this scene is so lovey-dovey that it deserves this. It's like these people are so needy that we wish they could get this. And then the music is there to undermine that aspirational love theme because she starts talking again. And here she tells the full story of her late husband and the night he shot himself. Well, she tells this full version, as you can tell, in Hollywood. That's right. The full story in the play is that he was homosexual. Yes. In Hollywood, he was a poet. But she tells this story, and now again we hear the same effect of the Varsuviana playing in her mind. All at once and much, much too completely. It was like you suddenly turned a blinding light. <laughs> 
on something that had always been half in shadow. That's how it struck the world for me. After she tells this story, Carmalden comes to her and says, we need each other. I, you know, you need someone, I need someone too. And he's making this romantic pitch to her, but we're still hearing the Varsuviana. You need somebody. And I need somebody too. Which I read as sort of a tell that this romantic pitch is not landing on her. Could it be you and me, Blanche? Yes, they kiss, and then they get a love the statement of the love theme, because again, North is sort of earnestly scoring what happens and not trying to tilt the field. Yeah, well, my thought about that was, given where the drama is going, it's important for the audience to invest as much as they can, invest hope in this, because the pain of the scene coming up where he says that you're not good enough to bring, you're not clean enough, Yeah, we need to have felt that we're close maybe to Blanche being saved, to things going well for her. This final embrace cue is sort of as Hollywood as the movie dares get, and that's for a particular reason, which is that their hopes are Hollywood and they can't get there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, sometimes there's God so quickly. Let's talk about the staircase descent scene. The music you hear there is almost identical to the music in the first Stanley and Blanche scene that we were discussing earlier. It's like almost a direct repeat of that. It's slightly extended. But it's essentially the down and dirty sex music from out the window now completely just scoring their lives. There's no indication that this might be coming from the club or anything. It's a pure psychological depiction of what's going on for them, which is essentially this magnetic sexual... Yeah, animal magnetism. Yeah, they've got this dynamic where he just hit her and she left him forever and then they get drawn back together by this force of sex depicted by the music wonderfully. I mean, it's an amazing cue. It's an amazing cue and it's just the goddamn sexiest thing. Like, I kind of felt my face blush at the end of it. Yeah. Like, woof. What woof? It was kind of a so woof. So here's the to hilarious it. thing about that. Should I say that again? The a couple first more times three maybe? were pretty good, but if you want to do a couple more, you she should try one. Woof. I don't think I want to. I think you you nailed it. First take. Hey Stella! Hey Stella! So here's another example of an all-time film quote that is incredibly supported by its score. You know, Hey Stella is somewhere in the middle of that AFI top 100 quotes. Right. And, you know, we talked about other entries on that list that are really imbued with importance and meaning by the music. And I think there's another splendid example. And the music kind of takes him yelling Hey Stella and runs with it. I actually feel like the saxophone echoes it. He yells Hey Stella. And then it goes, hey Stella, hey Stella. Can't you hear the saxophone going, hey Stella? No? I wouldn't mix in this. 
right. Maybe, maybe it's there to echo the dialogue, but the figure, da-da-da, da-da-da, is in the previous scene. I mean, it's part of the texture already. But it goes back and forth. It intercuts with, it can't be a coincidence that him yelling, hey, Stella, falls right in the holes between that saxophone phrase. Hey, Stella! Hey, Stella! That's in there, man. The thing about that cue, I don't know if this is unique in the annals of movies, but it's fantastic. It was censored. This movie, as we watch it today, is a restored version from, I think, in the early 90s. They found stuff that had been cut out right before release. But the movie from 1951 to 1992 or whatever had been censored to appease the Legion of Decency, which was like a Catholic watchdog group. And one of the things that they had said had to be changed before this movie could be released was that piece of music. And so Alex North actually went back to the studio after the rest of the movie was done and wrote an anodyne, old-fashioned, romantic piece of music to go over her descent to the staircase wow. instead. Huh. Listen to the professionalism and finesse and <laughs> and how disappointing this is by comparison, but listen to how he just <laughs> has to spin it another way in this piece of music. Yeah, so let's, after hearing that, let's go back and hear the genuine article. So there's a there's this counterpoint between these two melody instruments. It's a saxophone that I think is meant to be Stanley, and what, is it a flute that's Stella? also took out some of the close-ups of Stella's face sort of in her trance of lust. In her reverie. It was a little too strong in close-ups. Yeah. They did it in long shot, apparently, for the entire descent. Huh. Because, yeah, it's strong stuff. You know exactly what he's talking about. You don't have to believe me, baby. So there's this unused cue that you can hear the full original recording because it's on the soundtrack, but it's not used. And where it was supposed to go was at the very beginning when Blanche is first arriving, when she takes the streetcar named Desire to the streetcar named Cemeteries and gets off at uh, Legion Fields. And then she walks down the street looking around, confused, not sure whether this is the right place, a little bit scared. What we hear in the movie is this source music, which is pretty believable, kind of New Orleans-style jazz. Right. What North wrote for it is this kind of quirky, cubist, abstracted, modernist take on jazz that is threatening and unpredictable and expressive.
it's great. It's like a great piece of music and kind of paves the way, I feel like, for a lot of the jazzy scores of the 50s and 60s that followed this. We should talk about how this paves the way for this kind of use of jazz in film scores as a whole, right? Isn't this pretty revolutionary in terms of using these jazz idioms in a storytelling way? It really hadn't been done. Yeah, I mean, when people talk about this score, they say this was the first jazz score that wasn't just borrowing jazz for source purposes, but was composing with jazz. Right. You know, this style that is suggested throughout the movie, but this is the most focused version of it, was very influential in its own way, leading to all this crime jazz and angular stuff. I mean, you can hear West Side Story in this. You can hear... uh, Right. I, I don't think you really could have... West Side Story or the crime jazz or even Bernstein's score to Kazan's next movie that we talked about before. Oh, yeah, sure. This is hugely influential. But I want to say that I think that the choice not to use this piece is smart Hmm. because if they had used this at the beginning, it would say, you know, she's like Alice in Wonderland and this is Wonderland. Her whole world is this construction that is designed to bring about her tragedy. And by using actual source... The movie doesn't lay a finger on Blanche yet. Huh. It's, she's scared of this music, but we don't have to be scared of this music. And this slow burn of, like I said, the music slowly creeping up on the characters is allowed to play out over a long time. I think if the movie started out with this kind of like, she's in crazy town, out the window is crazy town, it would play its hand a little early. But I love this piece. Should we talk about when she actually does get to Crazy Town? So in the scene where things fall apart with Mitch, Mm -hmm. and she tells the story of how her life has actually been going the last few years, she tells about looking out the window as the soldiers were coming back from the camp, and they would call to her, Blanche, Blanche. And this is played like horror. I mean, there's this sickening slide in the pace. Not far from Belle Reve, before we had lost Belle Reve, was a camp where they trained young soldiers. On Saturday nights, they would go in town to get drunk. And on the way back, they would stagger onto my lawn and call, Blanche, Blanche. And it's not really jazzy anymore. It's this kind of raggedy tonality with a string texture. Yeah, it's like the kind of slippery, queasy, the idea that sex is dirty that's been sort of implicit in all of the previous quote-unquote sexual music is here sort of isolated. It's like just that queasy element. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then he kisses her. And then she says, marry me. And neither of those actions are acknowledged in the music. No. No, you're not clean enough to bring in the house, but not The music just sort of plays through with this, yeah, queasy, sickening sound. It's only playing the depravity now. You just feel trapped and horrified. Yeah. Like they do. So after that scene, she kind of chases him out of the house and... Some of the passersby on the street kind of stare at her, and she runs off. And now the music goes really to crazy town. (laughs) 
like, you know, she's finally snapped. And the sound of her snapping, I thought was so remarkable. It's remarkable just by dint of being staccato, a lot of short, sharp notes, whereas everything in the movie has been languid and drawn out and long, but now it's the sharp... Yeah, the pizzicato. save a timbre for the last 20 minutes of a movie and it feels like a shock to the system. Oh my god, they can make that sound too. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say something about pizzicato, which is when string players pluck at the strings with their fingers instead of running a bow over the strings. Right. Like you're hearing now. You know, I submit a lot of music for TV commercials and pizzicato strings I've somehow cast a magic spell over commercial ad houses and advertising executives. They think they can do anything. They're just the right amount of quirky, inoffensive time-filling. They're everywhere. Wow, this toilet paper reminds me of a washcloth. That's Charmin Ultra Strong, dude. Cleans so well, it keeps your underwear cleaner. Every other commercial you hear has just plinky, plinky, plinky pizzicato strings. I want you to place this award on the podium next to the vehicle that you think was ranked highest in initial quality by J.D. Power. This is it. You are wrong. Actually, it's all three. You tricked me. And they're used to be intentionally sort of bland and funny and inoffensive, and it's this very simple idea of something that is quirky. And... It was so refreshing to me to hear pizzicato really treated as like a weird sound, something that the instrument wasn't quite exactly designed to do, which is what it is. It's a strange kind of specialty effect that here is played for its strangeness in such a wonderful way. Yeah, I want to say about this cue, I listened a few times before we do these things. It wasn't until I was listening very attentively that I realized that the theme of this little scherzo that he calls mania on the soundtrack is the Blanche and Mitch love theme. Oh, I didn't catch that. It's this, you know, da-da-da-da, da-da. And then it's turned into this crazy thing. Because she's processing that her dream of love has shattered into this, you know, mm-hmm. splintered glass after after that shock. Nice. Yeah, maybe. Let's just talk a little bit about the climactic rape scene, which has a really amazing cue under it, I thought. For those who don't know, the climax, essentially, of the drama is that Stanley rapes Blanche and it basically is the last straw and she's driven insane. That's why the play ends the way that it famously does. So this scene, he's sort of toying with her sadistically, like he's about to do whatever he wants with her, and it's frightening. Gotta get out somehow. You think I'm gonna interfere with you? Mm -hmm. If you just saw this on stage, or you saw it without the music... It's just these two people that we've seen the whole time in the set we've seen the whole time, you know, moving around. Obviously, he's threatening her, but this music creates incredible tension. Well, maybe you won't be bad to interfere with. Stay back. Don't you come talk me another step, or I'll... You what? 
Some awful thing will happen. Again, with pizzicato to signify things having gone very, very wrong. And these little trumpet, uh, the quick tonguing. On you. Don't. And it has this momentum where the beat starts going. And it's not a jazz beat. It's this nervous, rhythmic propulsiveness. What is that for? Oh, I could twist the broken end in your face. But you would do that. And, you know, Brando is just standing, smirking with this music under it. Uh, I just thought yeah. the, the sense of the threat was so acute because of the way Alex North had played that. Yeah, here, here. Alex North said somewhere that because they couldn't show the rape, he tried to put in a whale in the score. Yeah, well, on the shot where the mirror cracks, and that's the last image that you see in this scene. Uh, and from there, we were given to understand what goes on to happen. But on that climactic moment in the scene, yeah, there are these long horn falls rivaling the ones at the end of the Pink Panther that kind of descend all the way down, down, down. Yeah, uh, I found this quote. North says, I tried to evoke from the orchestra what sounded like the wail of all women suffering, the women of the world. And I think I achieved it. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you, buddy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's all the women of the world, but I just like this idea that what can't be depicted on screen because of the code, because of proprieties, the music can get in there and be part of the, like, let there be no mistake about the violence that is being done here. Yeah. So there's a theme in this movie that we haven't talked about yet. It's kind of the central motif in the movie. You hear it at the very end of the main title. It's the da 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 da. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That theme, that little motif, emerges throughout, and it sort of gradually comes to be apparent that it corresponds to Blanche's descent. It seemed to me, anyway. okay. I find that little motif fascinating and kind of, uh, every time it comes up, I'm like, oh, there it is. It's, It's an attractive little motif. What did you think that motif meant or corresponded to? I think that was a sort of hint of Blanche's wistfulness, of the kind of regular, protected existence that she wished she had, that she was never able to achieve, and that kept getting destroyed by the actions of both her and other people. I don't know. Maybe I'm just babbling. No, that's pretty good, actually. That actually is nicely put. I kind of believe that. Okay. I guess my take on it is that in this movie about illusion versus reality, and as we've been talking about music that takes you from one to the other, corresponds to one to the other, that theme was in this right in the middle place. I thought you were straight. Straight? What straight? A line can be straight or a street. The heart of a human being? 
Don't say I lied to you. Lies! Lies inside and out! All lies! Never inside! I never lied in my heart! The emotion, for me, of that theme, I guess, encapsulated the ambivalence I keep talking about. Like, was it about fantasies? Mm -hmm. Was it her reality? Yeah, it could go either way. And was it Blanche herself, or was it, uh, you know, Belle Reve, this place in her head where things used to be good, or is it uh, some love in her future? It's all mixed together, because those things are all mixed together. That's right. And the sound of it and the use of it, uh, <laughs> uh, here I am struggling to, to find any words to say about this. And I w- let's say that that's a good thing about this motif. Like, to me, that is the most advanced kind of musical scoring that one can do is to write music that enters the drama in a way that can't be summarized by anything else. You know, there's the old thing people say about art. You know, a poem is a poem because the content of it couldn't be said any other way. Mm -hmm. It's unsummarizable. That's what makes it art. And I feel like that motif, other elements of this score, too, are not tools of the movie. They are rich artistic elements in themselves that, you know, you could say any number of things about without summarizing them. At the end of the movie, I don't know if it's the number one quote of all time, but it's got to be up at the top of their quote list, right? Yes, that is also on the AFI's top quote list. They both are. Both Haystella and I've Always Depended on the Kindness of Strangers. I'm forgetting which one is higher. I think Haystella is higher. All right. Well, fair enough. They are both notable quotables (laughs) from A Streetcar Named Desire. And this, which is Blanche's goodbye line and this painfully poignant last illusion line, is followed by this heavy, tragic statement of that... Blanche's dreams or Blanche's ideal world theme that I've been trying mm-hmm. to talk about. Whoever you are, I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. Because it's been so sort of ambiguous, its meaning has been evolving the whole time, it just feels like such satisfying, might not be the word, but such uh, aesthetically rewarding place to have arrived at. That's how it felt to me. Yeah, I agree. Because your mind is full of like, what does this mean? What has happened here? What could have been done? What can be done now? You're just trying to sort it, and Alex North has spun out his score in such a way that He can give a forceful statement of a theme that doesn't in any way conflict with all of the uncertainty that this drama has created. Yeah, I agree. Like you said earlier, the music lives with the drama in an incredibly earnest way. And it deals with the emotions that come up almost, yeah, as a character in the drama would. And it sort of gives credit to all of the different characters' thoughts and all of their emotions. It doesn't impose an order on them, or as you said earlier, it doesn't try to flatten all of the wonderful, complex ambiguity that's in the drama. It's just there with it. It lands at just a very uh, resonant, can I, how about that? Yeah, sure. A very resonant way. It just, it lands so nicely there. And this was the guy's first film score. Yeah, incredible. 
So I think it is my turn. I don't know if we're... Uh, there's no turns. Just go for it. Uh, all right. Well, I think I'll go first in terms of ranking this relative to the other scores we've talked about. Sure. So I think it's been pretty clear that I'm a big fan of it and that I really liked it a lot. So it's going to go at least near the top of my list. What the consideration was for me was, does it in fact surpass On the Waterfront? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is currently at the top of my list and yours as well, I think. Uh, no, I think I let Ben Hur be above it to your Oh, shock. that's right. You did, to my shock. I'm still shocked. Okay, but anyway, yes. On the Waterfront's at the top of my list, and I felt like I had this very special connection watching it, the moment that really sealed it for me as my favorite of the scores that we've discussed so far was the ending, when this enormous orchestral triumphant statement is accompanying Marlon Brando and close up on his face and then him walking across the pier. And I felt this just enormous emotional impact of, as I've said before, this transcendent combination of the music and the image that was so striking and memorable to me. And I felt like that is something that I want to hang on to and that I want to honor on my list that I'm making. So I had to consider, well, is there anything in this movie that kind of comes up to that? I think no. I don't think there is a moment in this movie that quite rivals how powerfully I felt the score was giving me an emotional response to the drama. But I think that on the whole, for all of the ways that we talked about how sensitively North scored this movie, how he was able to participate in the drama and just do it the whole way through and not have any false steps where it felt like he was telegraphing anything or making a decision that was not meaningful. Everything was just so. And I also have to give it enormous credit for being a trailblazer in the use of these jazz idioms in scoring, which is something that I respond to particularly. And I feel like he deserves credit as a trailblazer and as a as a dramatist in this. And I think overall on balance, even though it didn't have that one moment that really knocked me out, I think I am going to put this on the top of my list. Yeah, I'm all for everything you said. If I had to submit a one moment, I would probably submit the Staircase Descent as um, sure. a fairly spectacular matching of music to picture. Absolutely. Stunning. But I hear you that it doesn't have a moment where you're sort of knocked back by this effect like you are by something triumphant. Yeah. But at the end of the movie, I did feel knocked back in a sense by the whole thing. I sort of mm-hmm. sat back and was like, that was brutal. Like, that was very hard stuff, what happens to this woman. On one of the bonus features on the DVD set, there's an interview with Ilya Kazan, and he's saying, you know, I liked the movie, but I liked it better in the theater because the wonderful thing about theater is it's happening right in front of you. So if something bad starts to happen, you feel in your body like, uh, something bad is happening. Uh, can I stop it? Can anything be done to stop this? Is it going to stop? I felt a version of that at the end of this. Like mm-hmm. something terrible had just happened in front of me and I had been locked in with it, not able to prevent it and that that had had a real impact on me. And while I don't think that that is the same as a given moment doing that to me, I feel like Alex North's contribution to that effect was undeniable. Yes. This is... I think by far the most mature text of a movie that we've looked sure. at, the most ambitious, complex, dramatic endeavor. I mean, I guess the mission had some high aspirations, but it couldn't live yeah, up to them. Did not get there. Right. Bit of more than it can chew. And this, you know, 
is one of the great masterpieces by Tennessee Williams. It is it's very effective, but it's it is very nuanced and complex and not doing any one thing. And so that places a special kind of responsibility on the composer, where if the composer does just one thing, it would miss the point. Mm -hmm. So what he had to do was reach a hand in and press on the clay, you know, like shape this pot carefully. Can't push too hard. You can't not push enough. And the sensitivity it takes to do that I mean, I guess you could say that that's what's going on in something like Ben-Hur, which is indeed at the top of my list right now. But there, the objective is essentially to keep things square, to keep them in the lines, to keep yeah. this thing looking like the product it's supposed to be. And here, the objective is to be an artist at every moment, not to give the producers the product they needed, which I think someone like Miklos Roja does wonderfully, but to be uh, sensitive to the human spirit all the time. I don't know how to say it without it sounding high-flown. Yeah, you're entitled to it. I feel like Alex North joins in the dance that the actors and the director and everyone are doing. Yeah. And, you know, Leonard Bernstein, also a great composer and a very sensitive composer and insightful music. But like I said, in that conversation, he jumps out in front of the movie and waves his arms. And that's exactly what North doesn't do. He is dancing with them. And so to me, it's just such a clear first place so far. I just wanted to say some things about why. But to me, it's obviously at the top of the list. Great. Okay, well, that sounds like it's going to be hard to top. Uh, next up is Jerry Goldsmith's score for the 1968 science fiction classic Planet of the Apes. Andy, can you think of something that A Streetcar Named Desire and Planet of the Apes have in common? Yes, and it was how I wanted to end this episode. Oh, good. I am so proud of us, John. Yeah. I am so proud of us for not having referred to that thing until now. <laughs> really. <laughs> <laughs> What is it that they both have Kim Hunter in them? It is Kim Hunter. No, that is not the thing I thought. Uh, is that what you had in mind? Nope. Let's pat ourselves both on the back. Pat, pat, pat. For being mature, serious-minded people <laughs> who addressed ourselves to this topic with our full intellectual capacities and didn't just make easy references to the thing that all of our listeners have been waiting for us to make a reference to the entire time. We're better than that. Yeah, I think we did a great job. Um, yeah, anything else you want to say? You want to end on that? Well, I mean, we've been kind of joking about what our uh, outro should be here, but I actually liked something that you said in last episode. You said, uh, hey, you know, I just like listening to film music. And I like listening to film music, too, so let's listen to some more film music, Andy. Oh, you want to say that every time? Is that the idea? Uh, I don't have to say it exactly. Maybe we can refine it a bit. But I like that sentiment. I liked listening to this. It is just satisfying to listen to. You feel like you're listening to a creative work with real meat to it. That's how yep. it felt. So yeah, listening to movie music is fun. Yes, let's do some more of it. All right. Yeah, let's listen to some more movie music. I don't know. Did we say it already? Uh, I don't know, but maybe let's just listen to some more movie music. All right. Let's see. Let's see how that works as an actual ending. All right. We'll see how we do. All right. Well, let's listen to some more movie music. I'm gonna keep saying it. You say it too. All right, let's listen to some more music. Ooh, that was a good one. <laughs>